people have asked me, including my editor, uh, yeah. Jonathan Galassi and FSG, he has said, well, what does Alex see Morris? And I thought I had to give myself pause because I mean, in some ways that, that, that sort of, I mean, I mean, he's just the handsome prince. He's just, you know, <laughs> the, yeah, he's wonderful. He's, but um, that is doing uh, Alec a bit of, of a disservice. That would have accounted for Alec's uh, first attraction to Morris, but not why he loves Morris. And I think that, and I know that what Alec sees in Morris is that um, Morris is someone who loves more deeply than he is able to say. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am really excited to be joined by my guest today because not only do I get to uh, gush about Ian Farster and remember my first homoerotic encounter with Morris, but to actually spin it on its head with the lesser known lover, uh, Alex Scudder. Um, in Ian e. Farster's novel, who we don't get a lot of information about. So I'm sure we'll cover all of that with uh, William DiConzio, who didn't even ask him if I pronounced that right, but I'm going with the Italian <laughs> pronunciation. Okay, he gave me a thumbs up. I want to just give you a little info about William. Uh, he's a very distinguished playwright whose plays have been staged in the cities of New York, Los Angeles, San Diego, and Philadelphia where I know he's Zooming from right now. Oh, and at Yale University and the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center and at the National Constitution Center. Okay, so much of William's plays have been performed all over America. Uh, he has taught literature, writing, theater studies at Smith College, Haverford College, and Yale. At Yale, he was appointed Dean of Trumbull College, and he's currently associated with the Honors College of Drexel University. So I am so happy to be joined with you, William. Uh, that is quite a distinguished uh, career bio. Thanks. <laughs> so, it, I mean- well, Doesn't quite get me a cup of coffee at Starbucks, but yeah, it looks well on it. Yeah, okay, thanks. It's a very, no, no. You know, let's give you all of the accolades because, um, I'm so curious first to, before we get into Alec, um, the novel that I'm here to really dig in uh, with you about, what is it like to go from writing so much theatrical material to then eventually ending up writing a novel? Like, is that, is it easy to balance those creative sides? Huh. The, um, I would say that uh, I think uh, as, uh, in, my, in my experience, playwrights come from sort of two places. Um, some of us um, come from theater. Um, I'm thinking of uh, a, uh, a, a playwright whom I, whom I really esteem come to playwriting from theatrical backgrounds. I'm thinking of Tony Kushner. Mm. who's a director and whose uh, degree from NYU is in directing. So he, he arrives from that tradition. And then there are those of us who come to theater from literature, uh, which is where I came from, where I come from. I have, a, uh, I, as both an undergraduate and uh, a first-time graduate student, um, I studied the tradition of English uh, literature. And so my segue into playwriting was, this is funny, it was this summer that I, um, I finished my, my dissertation. This is a fate I do not wish on anyone. And you should listen to this particularly since you're in the throes of this process. I got hired 
um, at my first job at Smith College teaching full-time ABD, meaning I hadn't quite finished my dissertation. So I was teaching full-time, never, never having taught before, like having to make up all this stuff as, as I went along, teaching full-time and finishing my dissertation in, at the same time. Mm. When I, I would get to Sunday night when I realized I had to be on, in the classroom the next day and realized that I had not done anything but work on my dissertation for the last four days. And I would just, I would cry and I would get into a hot bathtub with a shot of vodka or something. And, you know, and I would just <laughs> go on from there. But I felt, this is, this is what I'm getting to, that after I finished my dissertation, I, I thought, oh, well, now I can write something that I really want to write. And uh, in my naivete, I thought, uh, okay, well, I don't have time to write a novel. I know, I'll write a play, they're short. And um, that's sort of, when I tried that, um, it felt like, oh, this is what you've been trying to write all your life, but you didn't know it. And I had a wonderful colleague at, at Smith um, on faculty who allowed me to sit in on his undergraduate playwriting classes and that gave me a little deadline of trying during when the, when in fact I did not write a play in the three month summer break, uh, I was back and uh, sitting in on his class and uh, it gave me a deadline, you know, turning it into a scene every week. The, um, there, so there's that, but the, the other thing that I've um, discovered only after I, wrote, tried to write a novel, wrote a novel, and Alec is my first novel, um, is that there, there is, uh, there's an element of the, an element of technique that is shared. And maybe we're not so much aware of this, and maybe I would not have been aware of it had I not written so many plays. And that is that the, in, in a novel, as in a play, the unit of composition is the scene. Hmm. I mean, it's, I, maybe that's, it, you know, maybe that's not news to, to you, but it was like this huge light bulb going off when I discovered that. It's like, oh, yeah. And then um, uh, my agent, who is now my, uh, my friend, said that when he, you know, he's trying to, who worked with other novelists, he's, you know, he, he said what I like so much about, about your work is that you, there's like nothing. It's like, boom we're in the scene, <laughs> you know, we're, we're just there. And that's kind of, well, and that makes so much sense, William, because, well, and for everyone out there, um, you know, I could have said Dr. DeConzio, but, um, you reminded me of your PhD experience. Um, but I have a, um, good friend of mine, Jan Balakian, who I've interviewed here, um, who is an Arthur Miller scholar, but then worked on a play, is now, you know, has a play out, so is a playwright. And she, I wonder if you feel the same with advice she gave me, which is in scholarly works of academia, you have to really explain your close readings. Like it's really, you start to get into the weeds where Ooh, yeah. in a play, in a novel and creative work, you're not supposed to explain so much. Just show it, show it happening. I, I, the, the piece I'm working on now is, um, is based on one of my plays, the, a new novel. Uh, and um, it's, it's uh, un, unlike Alec, which takes place in an historical period, mm -hmm. this new, new piece will, I think, uh, will be considered a, a historical novel because the, principal figures or like real life people. Mm. Um, and I have to, so I'm, I'm sort of like figuring that out a little bit, but, but also remembering um, not only do I not want to say it, but if I start to put stuff like that in, it's an intrusion mm. and you, know, you don't need it. You just need to say what happened, show what happened and, um, let the characters think. But this makes oh, so much sense because it's something that I'm gravitating towards as 
like I've worked my way through Alec, which um, is that I've been listening actually to the audiobook and we oh. had talked before we hit the record button uh, to all of you out there. Um, the uh, performer, his name again is John, John Sackville. Yes, he does such a wonderful job with the British dialects and bringing the different social classes to life, which is so important in this historical work, right? We're in pre-World War I, but it will it becomes World War I. We're like, right, early 20th century in um, the UK, mostly England, but... Um, Actually, I think only England, um, right? You know, we, go to France, we go to France for a while. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and poor Morris goes to um, Gallipoli. Uh, but we hear about that after, afterwards in his yeah. own words. Yeah. Well, and at first we think Alec is going to go to Argentina, but things things take a turn with the romance between Morris and Alec, which... You know, going into your work, I was first reminded of just picking up Morris by Ian Farster. As an undergrad, I was really interested in um, just the whole canon of gay literature and like, okay, well, what's considered the first openly gay male novel? And then what's kind of pre the gay novel because the category doesn't exist. And Morris is one that really, you know, comes um, to the forefront, but wasn't actually published when Ian e. Forrester was writing it. And I've always kind of been curious about what would have happened if he had actually come out with it, you know, before Gore Vidal's The City and the Pillar, which kind of took over the first gay novel category. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, what was your first experience with Morris? Because you must have been very fascinated, I'm assuming, by the novel. I read it. Uh, it was published, as you said, it was published in 1971, a uh, year after Forster died, uh, by, through, as I'm sure you know, through the um, intervention of his younger friends who were Christopher Isherwood and W.H. Auden. Isherwood was living in Malibu at the time, and the, the manuscript, I'm not, not sure if it was the unique copy of the manuscript, but it was a typed manuscript. Somebody carried it, another friend who was flying uh, to the States from England, just brought it in his luggage, and it made, it, it made its way to, um, to Malibu, where uh, Auden was visiting uh, Christopher Isherwood. Um, I, you know, I can't remember when I first read it. It was probably in the late uh, 1970s. It was certainly before the Merchant Ivory movie, which I believe is 1983. Is that correct? Maybe. I don't know. I'd have to check up, but I, I yeah, think you're I, right. It's in the eight, early 80s. Sometime. Oh, here's how's this for fun. Um, a few weeks ago, I had lunch with with James Ivory. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> he's delightful. Um, anywho, where were oh. we? So, so I read it and yeah. I'm sure it made an impression on me. Um, I made the, uh, I mean, I saw the movie when it came out, but I think I, I just, I, I was looking through some, some very sloppy notes that I made around 2010, where I'm just like jotting down ideas. And I so inaccurately remembered the novel that I called Alec Alex in, in my notes. And I said, what happens to Morris and Alex in World mm. War I? Mm. Um, and then I read Wendy Moffat's amazing biography of Forrester the Great Unrecorded History, uh, that I believe that was published in 2011. I read it in 2012. And that's where I thought, ooh because she uncovered stuff that I did not know about um, his attempt to write an epilogue, 
his confessions that as he was revising the novel, Alec was the character who got the most revision because he felt that he did not know Alec. Um, he knew Morris very well. <laughs> got to school with him up just about or could have. And it's that uh, Oxford man. Yeah, yeah. Well, Cambridge, but we'll forgive. Cambridge, you. okay. Right, right. It's the right milieu. You got it. Um, so, um, but I thought, I mean, I I know Alec. This was a kid from what we would call now. I mean, you know, I think there's this funny, uh, there's this funny atmosphere <laughs> that goes with the condition of being a servant. And that's because for us, contemporary Americans, because, you know, usually our only experience of them is they're like this human prop in a costume drama that is taking place on another continent at another time, usually another century. But when I started, when I realized that um, actually servitude was the largest field of employment in in England at the beginning of the 20th century, who knew? And then when I thought about it, it wasn't that, you know, Alec was this servant, but rather he was a working class kid who managed to get not a bad job as a gamekeeper. And it just so happened that the, that the, you know, that the social, the class system of the time, uh, attached a certain stigma to it. Uh, and he's very, Alec is a really sort of proud, cocky kid. And he just hates the idea of being a servant. He doesn't mind being a gamekeeper. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's nice. Uh, yeah, and just for everyone out there, like what is, what is a gamekeeper? Like what kind of profession was that? Well, you know, and it still exists. And I understand that it's quite soft, sought after. Huh. that a gamekeeper would be somebody who, who um, managed the um, typically forest land that would be part of an English manor or estate. That the, uh, the manor would be set in an area called a park. Uh, and the park was, as parks, <clears throat> excuse me, forests tend to be, uh, the home to deer and other wildlife. And a gamekeeper would uh, look after, would be responsible for the well-being of the animals who live there. Mm. Uh, in Alex's case, he's also, um, and that would, that would, some of this I sort of um, interpolated, but in Alex's case, he's also um, given the charge of the kennels because the, um, you know, the hunting apparatus on uh, on such an estate uh, would involve hunting dogs and and maintenance of rifles and all of this stuff. So it's really a job with um, with some responsibility. When Morris meets him, he is the uh, under gamekeeper or assistant gamekeeper on the estate uh, at Penge. And in my novel, we, we, we learned that that was a promotion for him because he had been his very first job when he got when he was 16, he was the gamekeeper's apprentice or boy. Mm -hmm. So it was like going from being, uh, I don't know, intern to assistant uh, gamekeeper, associate gamekeeper. Yeah, well, and what I find so interesting is like what you brought up that Ian Farster we really don't get a lot of Alex um, psychology, his um, nuances, because everything is told through Morris's point of view. Yeah. So we're getting kind of an unequal power dynamic. We're getting the like upper class, yeah. aristocratic, like you said, you know, um, college educated Cambridge um curriculum so when he meets alec there's almost this fetish oh, yeah. um established with okay here is now the gamekeeper and i'm morris is breaking a taboo by being with alec yeah. um which i think ian farster knew really well well yeah that's yeah and uh 
funny you should use the word uh, fetish because everybody's, uh, I guess the most famous gamekeeper is, isn't Lady Chatterley's lover? He's a, he's oh. a gamekeeper. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's so true I mean, with the affair and yeah. He, <laughs> oh, so, yes, D.R. Lawrence. Yeah, they do that too. The, the gamekeeper is the, I don't know, the, yeah. the bad boy. Uh, of, well, even uh, Oscar Wilde in the picture of Dorian Gray, you have Dorian is not of the same social class status as Lord Henry and Basil. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of that. Um, and, great, and, uh, Oh, and speaking of it, speaking yeah, yeah. Of class, Forster, um, uh, Forster had a had a model, and I'm sure you know this, for the relationship of Alec and Morris, and that was his friends, uh, where they were his friends, Edward Carpenter and uh, George Merrill, and that was, if anything, even more extreme because mm. uh, there was also a discrepancy, big discrepancy in age. Uh, uh, they're like 24, 26 years. Uh, Merrill, who was the uh, much lower class. I mean, this, I mean, Merrill was like from the slums, really grew up impoverished as, um, as Alex certainly did not, but, mm. and, and, um, and Edward Carpenter uh, came from, if not an, an aristocratic family, then a very wealthy bourgeois family and had gone to Cambridge and, you know, and, so yeah, so I think that the uh, yeah the class uh, the class taboo was yeah a big deal. I know probably not a bigger deal than the same sex thing, but it was in in I think in English mores um, it was as unthinkable. I mean, it was illegal for um, two men to have a sexual relationship. But it was unthinkable that two people of different social classes would mm. would would have that kind of romantic relationship. Yeah, well, and I think I'm so glad you brought up Edward Carpenter, right? Prominent English sexologist is at that cutting edge of homosexual language yes. in medical journals. Same yeah. with his friend John Addington Simmons, who had passed away though, but um, all part of this community with Oscar Wilde, but all of the language that they're kind of using is still what's unnameable, the love that dare not speak its name. But in a way, even though that concept of homosexuality exists in terminology, it still really is not in the culture. Like Morris isn't calling himself homosexual or Alec is not describing himself. There's still kind of coded language. So what was it like to kind of tap into that moment in history? It was, oh, well, it was, it was lots of fun. Um, I, I did, you know, when I wasn't busy weeping on the tea, on, 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 on my keyboard and sweating bullets, I was really, was really having fun with this project. Um, yeah, you know, I, I found out something. I wrote my dissertation on Walter Pater, Oh. who had been one of Oscar Wilde's teachers and a huge uh, queer at, uh, at mm -hmm. yeah, Wilde went to Oxford. Um, but um, in my research for that, I discovered that before it was rather late, it might've been like 1879 or so, that there were no homosexuals before 1879 because the word had not been invented yet. So this was like, like fairly recent medical jargon. And uh, uh, yeah, I even had a, I had a British teacher in grad school, uh, an Englishman who was considerably older. He was well into his seventies when, uh, when he was teaching us, but he came from a generation where he's, he, he didn't say homosexual, he said homosexualist. So I thought- oh, wow. Yeah, wow. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't too hard. And I think uh, a lot of us grow up, you know, finding ways uh, not to say gay. And I mean, your, your generation has uh, reclaimed the word queer for us, which is so useful. Uh, not so, uh, not so in my generation, but, but um, the 
the important thing, and, and even, you know, I'm just thinking, even Alec has that moment of shame when um, uh, Risley uh, first comes on to him at mm. the estate where he, his, at his first job, where he's just a kid. And, uh, and he's so embarrassed because um, he's, he's embarrassed because he thinks that he, that Risley has, has told his employer mm-hmm. that Alec is one of those. And, uh, and that embarrasses him. And, and, you know, and Risley, who is way ahead of, of the game is saying, listen, you know, just chill kid. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. She's really cool. Yeah, but I think what's so impressive with the voice that you give Alec is um, like he's really aware of his authenticity and like what he desires. And usually, like you brought up shame, I think readers would expect when they open up something from like right before World War One that they're going to be full of men who are shameful in the closet. Um, But Alec is kind of the antithesis to that. Like he's still trying to live his life. It's more Morris who has that pressure of not wanting to be fully himself. Like, so maybe like, why do you think Morris is more shame and not shameful, but is not completely comfortable being fully, um, fully out and, um, yeah. What's holding Morris back? Uh, I think it's his um, his uh, social status. Uh, you know, people think of, of Morris as an aristocrat, but he's really not. Um, he is um, sort of like Edward Carpenter. Um, a really uh, rich uh, bourgeois. I mean, his father was a stockbroker and started and mm. founded the company that he is working in as a young man. So he's got lots of money. Uh, his father was a gentleman, but not you know an aristocrat of some kind. Mm. So he he had the um, uh, the means and um, the uh, sort of uh, a gentility of rear of he was a gentleman. So yeah. he was uh, not an aristocrat, uh, but I think that he is, that maybe it's that status that makes him so absolutely entrenched in uh, the morality, middle-class morality. Mm-hmm. His, um, Forster was, and I took a cue from Forster for, for, my, for, my, for Alec. Uh, Forster said it was his ambition in writing Morris to create a character who was unlike him in just about every way except one. And so he made uh, Morris handsome and um, athletic, um, very conventional in his morality and not overburdened with intellect, let's say. I mean, Forrester was just such a wonderfully, I mean, just a a brilliant Scott. very smart guy. Um, when I got to Alec, I decided that the way that Alec, it wasn't so much um, physical appearance or, or, or that, but the way that Alec would be not like me was that I was raised in, uh, in a Catholic family and sent to Catholic schools and therefore indoctrinated, imbued with homophobia. Hmm. Um, in, in my religious education and therefore subject to the most torturous uh, scruples as a kid and even as a young man. And, um, and I thought, I am going to spare him that. Mm. That is how he is not going to be like me. He is going to be somebody who, I mean, I looked like a normal kid. I, I think I mostly acted like a normal kid. I'm sure I was a little zany. I was terrible at baseball. There was a dead giveaway, but you know, um, but, but that he, that uh, unlike me, uh, Alec would be, would recognize from an early age that he was attracted to other boys 
um, the, the strength and the authenticity of the attraction. I mean, we, we don't have to ask people or, or ascertain if we're sexually attracted to somebody. I mean, it's like, kaboom, it's nothing. I mean, it's like, it's there. Um, he knew that. And he just decided from an early age that it was good. It was okay. Hmm. He was confident enough about himself as a, as a person um, to realize that. And of course, then um, he still has to do battle with the, with the external world. But he, at a young age, had, um, had won the inner battle. And, and that was, that was, that was cool. I mean, I guess you could call it, a, it certainly wasn't a religious battle, it was a spiritual battle. In a way, it was a spiritual con conquest of organized religion, which was, you know, telling him he was going to hell. So that's, that's where, that's where Alex's um, self-confidence uh, came from. And I, and I discovered once that I realized that about the character it, it was so right. It was just, I mean, and that's why Morris loves him. I mean, aside from the fact that he's, he's way cute <laughs> and, and all those other nice attractive things. But what, what Morris uh, loves about Alec is that um, he is so authentic and uh, to himself. People have asked me, including my editor, uh, yeah. Jonathan Galassi at FSG, he has said, well, what does Alex see in Morris? And I thought I had to give myself pause because I mean, in some ways that, that, that sort of, I mean, I mean, he's just a handsome prince. He's just, you know, <laughs> the, yeah, he's wonderful. He's, but um, that is doing uh, Alec a bit of, of a disservice. That would have accounted for Alex's uh, first attraction to Morris, but not why he loves Morris, and I think that, and I know that what Alec sees in Morris is that um, Morris is someone who loves more deeply than he is able to say. Hmm. And he, and what proves that is that he loves Alec. He loves that about Alec, which is real. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and. I think it's just so beautiful how even Alec in your take and in this tradition of what I really love is when a canonical novel gets spun on its head with, um, you know, a different character's point of view, like whether it be when I interviewed Gregory Maguire about Wicked and the Wicked Witch of the West or right? Madeline Miller's Song of Achilles. There's a lot of, oh, Grendel, of yeah. course, with Beowulf. Um, but what I really like is you show that Alec, that you introduce him into this classical education tradition of how infatuated he is with ancient Greek literature and like all of the queer canon, right? We have the homoerotic mythology. We have Plato. We have um, even the Bible with David and Jonathan. So I could see you were really enjoying creating this um, classic homoerotic genealogy. I mean, was that was that was, fun for you? Well, it was the dare I say it was autobiographical. Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, the um, uh, sure it was fun because he is because I mean what <clears throat> what hooks Alec 
and maybe is what hooks a lot of us when we're we're kids and and is that you know he comes across this stuff that is considered oh classical art and he's seeing these old books in the library with all of these with uh, art plates of these astoundingly beautiful heroic male physiques you know and in certain periods Hellenistic and Baroque I mean they're just there's they're so sexy. They're, you know, the, you know, the, the, the stat. I mean, it's just, wow. <laughs> I really like looking at this. Who is this? Oh, oh, that guy's name is La Aquan. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, and something that Forrester didn't do, maybe, I know he felt really conflicted. I'm not sure how he would have felt with the novel even having come out posthumously, but... Um, that even the movie is not explicit in the sexual scenes. We don't get a lot of male nudity. I think maybe there's like a back shot of Morris's butt or Alec. I don't, I haven't seen the scene in that, you know, it's been a while, but like, I remember that there's that infamous moment in the novel and in the movie, which is when Alec climbs up the ladder thinks yeah. he's been called by Morris to go into his bed and please him. Um, and in the movie, there's nothing, it's like just completely, um, the whole sexual moment is gone. Like they wake up in the morning and <laughs> it's left to the interpretation. But like, what I love is you introduce like consensual, um, exciting sex in the language. Like Alec is a very, it really knows how to speak about his sexual desire in language. Oh, thanks for saying that. I was, uh, yeah, uh, when um, it's pretty, uh, one of the other things that I, I learned from Wendy Moffat's biography was that when, when Forster wrote uh, Morris, he was inexperienced, let us say. He had not mm. had an erotic experience. So he was he was in his early 30s, but had but had never had a sexual experience. So I think maybe some of that reticence uh, was ignorance. Uh, that does not account for why he would not have written stuff in as he revised the novel um, in in later decades when he was certainly experienced. Um, and it may just have been that he thought it was uh, appropriate uh, to his time, but the I uh, I uh, when you mentioned the, the movie, I have not. I made a point of avoiding the movie um, while I was working on Alec. I did not. I mean, my my source was uh, Forster, hmm. and I didn't want. The, I mean, movies are very powerful and. And James Ivory is a wonderful director, so I'm, I'm sure the movie is terrific. Um, and I remember it as being as being very good. But I I knew how susceptible I would be to um, to a film if I watched it, and then I would be sort of adapting <clears throat> Merchant Ivory instead of uh, instead of working with the primary text. So I didn't do that. But but uh, yeah, there's yeah, it's it's kind of I had uh, my one one star review on. Uh, on Amazon is it's it's too graphic. <laughs> this was somebody who wrote, "I love Morris, but this is too graphic." So too um, graphic. I mean, yeah, right. It's it. There could have been, you know. I always think things could be more graphic. Like, not that I want it to be more graphic, but like I think it's very right. It's all emanating from Alex's psyche. So it makes sense why he's experiencing arousal or coming to his own with his sexual oh, yeah. knowledge. Um, yeah, but um, well, there's always going to be critics. With, there will be, there will be. There will be. And I mean, like you've published many plays, like how many plays have you actually, like have you had um, published or performed? Um, I think 14 or 15. Wow. Have been, 
have been staged. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like, so no, you know, um, the whole court of public opinion. Um, I but, and it's but, so much yeah. better in, it's so much better in publishing um, because <laughs> um, my generation, we often refer to my generation of playwrights as those of us who have been workshopped to death that you would, you know, that, that theaters would get into the, um, the industry of not fully producing, but workshopping new plays which meant that you had, and you get all this feedback and you, and you finally, you just think, I don't know what, I, I don't, don't even remember what I wrote. The great thing about, um, about a novel is that I had, it was just me and my editor. And, and he is, fortunately I'm working with um, one, of the, one of the foremost editors in the world. I don't know if he's, if he's the considered Anyway, Jonathan Galassi is is way up there, and I have complete uh, trust in him. So it was, you know, when he said, I listened. <laughs> well, Soleil, how much pressure did you feel when you got to that scene? When you got to the first um, sex scene with Morris and Alec, did you feel a lot of pressure because of how much it's in the queer canon? as a moment? You know, it's funny that I felt, um, I know I enjoyed it because I was, um, that part of the novel that, uh, that coincides with, uh, with Morris, um, I had an obligation uh, to, in, in, in Alec, uh, my novel assumes that the action of Morris really happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that was what happened. That was, mm -hmm. not, that was not fiction. In, my, in, in Alec, that fiction is fact. So I had to remain, on the one hand, uh, it's a little bit daunting because you have to remain true to Forrester. On the other hand, it's really kind of secure because I had this nice structure there yeah. um, that I could work in, but it was, you know, the, the structure was always there. And um, what set me free was that um, I knew I had to present the scene from Alex's point of view. And, and uh, that's why we're <laughs> at one point uh, early on, uh, and, and, and Forrester tells us that uh, Alec asks Morris if the door is locked. Because you know, he doesn't, you know, he knew they would really get in trouble. And he, more than Morris, I mean, he'd be canned, um, if not prosecuted, uh, asks if he can um, lock the door and, and, or if the door is locked. And Forrester, uh, he, he goes and locks the door and comes back and gets in bed. But in Alec, Alec gets to watch Morris walk to the door naked. Mm. come back to the bed and um, see this, I mean, this is a dream for, for Morris. This is just a dream. Mm. Alec has, has had some sexual experience uh, before. Uh, Morris has not. And here is this, it's like, you know, the god Eros just yeah. there. Yeah, like Morris has had kissing. Barely. Like barely kissing with, barely. His, um, with yeah. his Cambridge connections. Yeah. But also that was kind of like established that these are boys being boys in yeah. prep school or boarding and, school kissing. Yeah. But yeah, it was not in, it was actually, it wasn't, um, a lot of bodily contact. So oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense why. Certainly not with their yeah. clothes off. No, and, no, no. And what you have to believe, and this is absolutely shameless in Alec, is that both of these guys are just beautiful men. That there is, I mean, that they have that, that um, I mean, frankly, it's, you know, it's, it is, the basis of their attraction, first attraction, is that you know the love at first sight thing is because they're just 
Mm. They find each other very striking. Yeah. Well, you make them well endowed, William. I think that's what you're trying to get at. It's okay. We've yeah, cursed on yeah. this podcast before. There's been, there's been oh like, oh we've talked about, um, we've talked about like sex tapes and other scandalous things. So oh, this yeah. is, this is tame. This is tame oh, compared to, yeah. yes, yes. This is a tame discussion. Um, but, you know, I don't want to acknowledge you have this beautiful portrait behind you, but it's also the cover of your novel, just yeah. as we're getting towards the end, like who actually created this portrait uh -huh. of Alec? The idea came from um, a conversation that I had again with my editor who said that he would like the cover of the novel um, to feature a very simple black and white drawing. Mm. And I thought, oh, great, we're on the same page. Uh, I'm very, very fortunate to number uh, among my friends, uh, a uh, painter who's uh, quite prominent here in Philadelphia. His name is Paul Dussold, hmm. D-U-S-O-L-D. He's credited on the, on the cover. And, and um, I went out on a limb and I asked Paul if he would consider uh, doing a, uh, a portrait of Alec uh, to submit to the art department at FSG because I certainly, I didn't have the authority to say, okay, I want you to do the cover. Mm -hmm. And um, he was all for it. And um, we talked about uh, what we wanted. Actually, it's not framed yet, but um, he, he did a couple of renditions. And one of them is uh, based on an old photograph of me um, and he was the one, he, <laughs> Paul said that that was his favorite, that he wanted, that that was Alec. Mm. But uh, I thought, no, it was me. <laughs> it wasn't Alec. So the, the model is not a, a uh, professional uh, model. is a friend of Paul's daughter, and uh, his name is Finn, F-I-N. And I was very pleased that when Oh, we showed it <clears throat> to the uh, cover designer, uh, a man uh, who's the head of, uh, of art at FSG, uh, Rodrigo Corrales is his name. Hmm. Um, doesn't he sound like the, sounds like a character in The Princess Bride. I just love him. <laughs> <laughs> I have email, I've never, I haven't talked to him. I hope he has a Spanish accent. Um, but he, he wrote back in, a, in an email and said, uh, I love the art and the boy is beautiful. <laughs> well, that's good. That's and a compliment. That's all yeah. you needed. Yeah, um, and and I, I think it's, it gives it the historical flavor without being cheesy. Like, cause I could see someone could really go wild making this a cheesy, like, oh, yeah. you, know. River, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, a, I don't know, what do you, a Harlequin romance cover. Or, yes, yes. Or even having Alec and Morris, even though it's such a vivid moment in Alec's life when he first is sexual with Morris, it would be a little odd to have that on the cover. <laughs> like, yeah. and then it centers Morris, which is the whole point is, this is Alec's narrative and giving him life. So I love it. It, it also has this really classic ancient... It has that ancient Greek almost atmosphere of that was exactly, sculpture. That was exactly right. Uh, Paul is um, is very proud. Paul was trained at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts here in Philadelphia, mm. and he's very proud of that tradition. And they, oh yes, yes, they pride themselves on portraiture. Yeah, Thomas Eakins, Thomas Eakins, yeah. and uh, portraiture and uh, Mary Cassatt. Uh, landscapes, um, they, it, but they, he's not somebody who turns his back on, on uh, tradition and he, and uh, Paul is pleased with this. I would just say that it, what's unusual about the cover is that if in the portrait behind me, um, the, 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 the paper is cream colored stock, which by the way, hmm. this is wonderful. My father's first enterprise as a young married guy trying to uh, support his wife and baby whom they had very, very early, my sister. Uh, he had an art supply store 
and uh, it didn't last for very long, but when he got rid of it, uh, he kept a little bit of the inventory and among it was a portfolio, a folio of this very expensive drawing paper that he would sell by the sheet. And so I asked Paul if he would, if he would like it. And he said, yes, so this portrait is done on a piece of paper that is probably 70 years old or 80. I mean, it's just, wow. And, but it's very uh, precious to me that it's, it was from my father's uh, store. But, the, but the, the difference between the, the portrait and the cover is that since the stock is so light, um, the white chalk highlights on Alex's face are not so prominent. And when uh, FSG, when they did the cover, they changed the background to gray. And so the, uh, the chalk highlights mm. uh, stand out more. And I, I, I've really grown to like it. It's kind of distinctive. It's a little bit, it's not a little unrealistic, but, but well, I'm glad you like the cover. No, no, I, I, no, I love it. Well, and also it was such a surprise for me um, to encounter like how the action's going to unfold because you're really not given any of that insight in the cover, right? Sometimes a cover really gives you a spoiler or it's like one specific theme of the novel where here, I like that it's centered on, you know, Alex's male body, but even that it's his face and his, he's kind of pensive and contemplative. We're not given too much. And I like I like this surprise. Um, you know, did you, did yeah. you see what Alexander Chi described it in the New Republic? It was funny that you know you've, you've probably seen that article by him uh, about Alec. It's called "The Afterlives of E.M. Forster." If you yeah. haven't read, oh, take a look. Oh, yes, I need to take a look. Oh, it's oh, it's a terrific essay. But he says that when he got his copy of Alec from FSG, he unwrapped it. He said it looked like an English novel. Um, set published in the 1960s and set in Italy. <laughs> so, <laughs> wait, and who was the writer of that again? Alexander Chi. He's a novelist himself, and oh, really? You know, he wrote the. Um, it's a very you know uh, wonderfully queer. Uh, he teaches at Dartmouth. He teaches um, writing at Dartmouth. Oh yeah, you're gonna love his stuff. Okay. His, uh, latest is a is a book called How to write an autobiographical novel. Oh, it's okay. It's a collection of essays that are actually an autobiographical novel. Oh, yeah, I, oh, I'm, wow. I'm glad to let you know about him. C-H-E-E. -E, oh, good. Okay, so Alexander Chi. Well, and if I can, as we, you know, finish, and this has been such a wonderful discussion, went by so quickly as it always does when you're talking amongst friends of, you know, queer literature. Um, Michael Cunningham writes a really beautiful blurb on the back of your novel. Um, and he specifically says, just when it began to seem that I couldn't read E.M. Forrester's Morris one more time, as much as I love it, here's Alec, William de Conzio's brilliant reimagining of Forrester's classic. So I just wanna know, have you had a lot of discussions with Michael Cunningham? We were supposed to do a, um, he was supposed to do the, the be my interviewer for the, uh, the Philadelphia Library uh, mm. thing. Um, he's also published by Ferris Strauss and Giroux. And the, I, the, the reason why that, um, that blurb ended up on the, on the cover is because we share an editor, Jonathan Galassi is uh, also Michael okay. Honeypans. I have never, I've never met him, but after I, um, this is another new opera um, of his novel, The Hours. Yes, oh, this looks it? wonderful. It looks oh, very, it, it is. Well, one of I my went, favorites is in it, Kelly O'Hara. Kelly O'Hara, Renee Fleming, and yes. Joy DiDonato in, yeah. uh, in the upcoming Met uh, debut in, in, in the fall, conducted by our very own, Yannick Nézé-Séguin. Oh, he's wonderful. <laughs> yes. So yes. Well, and I will, you know, definitely make sure that, um, you know, maybe Michael Cunningham can uh, 
<laughs> you can meet him at the, uh, I'm sure he'll be at the hours. Mac debut. Yeah, uh, I wrote to him to tell him how much we enjoyed the, they did a, um, a concert version of, of uh, the opera here. In oh, that's right, in Philadelphia. A little, a little yes. while ago uh, uh, with Renee Fleming and Kelly O'Hara. Wow. Um, and I mean, it was wonderful. And, the, and you know, but it was like a, it was like um, the concert version. So the, the orchestra was on stage. It was so mm -hmm. beautiful. It's just so beautiful. So I, I wrote to him then and he said that he's planning to be at the, uh, at the debut uh, in the, in the fall at the Met. And we are already planning to uh, make that stop. So if you're going to be there too, maybe we could actually find a way to rendezvous. Um, yes, I will. I am definitely, you know, eager for that. <laughs> I will meet you in person, William. Um, you know, if I can meet Michael Cunningham, a dream. I mean, I, you know, just admire so much. I don't want to say the older generation, like in a, you know, to, to bring we, attention to your age, but you know, I, I admire, I admire so much my like gay male older, uh, those I'm inheriting such knowledge from. And I think it's wonderful to connect intergenerationally. Um, well, I think on that note, also shout out to Matt Alcoin because I know William really loves Matt's oh, Eurydice. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And his, his new book, that's, it's called yes. Impossible Art About Opera, which is nearly an impossible, it should be an impossible art, but um, yeah, he's way cool. And yeah. he's, on, he's on YouTube, your, uh, that uh, presentation that he did at, at Stony at, Brook. At yes, 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 yes. And you do. Yes, well, and you know, all of that really emanated because he had done a Whitman opera and that has, a lot of uh, queer homoerotic moments and, um, but there's a lot of panic in it. So what I love about Alec is, you know, there still is questioning. Alec will end back on, Alec is trying to find himself sexually, but of course he's still bounded by time historically and does, you know, worry about how open he can be. So, you know, you're, even though it is still so um, nice to actually have Alec, you know, have language that matches our current moment and kind of bring Alec out of the closet, you know, you're still bounded by the early 20th century. So, yeah, but you do such a beautiful job balancing that tightrope. And, um, you know, I think Ian Farster would be very pleased looking down on you william that's the um, biggest thing you can say Thank well oh and also wait i know i keep saying we're gonna end but i have to ask i mean you have met and have befriended it sounds like james ivory right oh yeah but has anyone else from the morris film universe reached out to you or has there been anyone else who we might be eager to know who received your novel who it doesn't just have to be attached to that film, but you know, someone who they made an impression when they reached out to you. I would say, um, I sure hope that Rupert Graves has read it, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I don't, I, I don't know. Um, Ivory, uh, again, there's uh, Jonathan Galassi at Ferris Strauss and Jarrell and um, wrote to him to ask to, to tell him how much he liked the novel and to invite me and, you know, to get in touch. So we, we had lunch. He is 93. Wow. He's working on a new screenplay. <gasps> he lives in, he, he lives like half a block from the, uh, from the East River um, in New York. He's also got a place out in the country, but what uh you know and we just like had lunch at a restaurant near his place and he just like astonishing he's he's wonderful so i you know i'm not, I'm, i was very uh honored uh, by his compliment and uh, really uh happy to meet him 
he was, um, I also sent him a couple of books. I sent him um, uh, The Great War in Modern Memory by Paul Fussell, hmm. which has a queer edge to it. That was the other thing that, you know, that it just reminds us that the uh, World War I was like the, or the Great War as it was called, was the foundational trauma of our age, of the 20th century. Hmm. Um, and it's still playing out. And uh, the other book is a, uh, a book called In Parentheses uh, by, by a, uh, a Welsh writer named David Jones, who uh, published in 1931 with a prologue by T.S. Eliot. But he, that uh, book was my source uh, for um, the history of the Battle of the Somme, which is where Alec is oh, wounded. Wow. So those are two uh, really beautiful pieces. Yeah. Well, and is there any plan for Alec? Because you are a playwright, William. <laughs> is there a plan for Alec to be performed on the stage? Um, and not on the stage, but in the interest of being, but to be honest with you, um, we have had um, two, um, um, we've been asked about a film version twice. Mm -hmm. um, and by some very nice people. Um, the, um, the, uh, I should probably explain that the uh, film and stage rights are negotiated, are managed separately from the literary rights. And while I, I submitted the manuscript of Alec uh, to the Forster Estate, which is managed, the literary estate is managed by the Society of Authors in London and they gave me their blessing and said, mm -hmm. I do this. In order to film Alec, uh, we need the rights to Morris, uh. which uh, I'm told by the agency that manages those rights in London, uh, those rights are not available currently. So, but should they become available, then I can't imagine Alec on stage, but I think I think a, a, a film version was, uh, I mean, that appeals to my aesthetic. Yeah, well, if you, and... want, if you want to try a play, kiddo, show me the script. <laughs> I'm not sure, I'm not sure. I mean, I just feel like each of your, it makes sense why so um, many have tapped into your playwright uh, ingenuity on the page, because it is true, every chapter really in a way acts as a scene in a play, like that you're thrown into the bodies and the action. And yeah, I think it would, but I think it would work really well as a film through Alec's journey. So I'm hoping that the rights can open up for Morris because I know it's Thanks tricky. It's very tricky when it comes to acquiring rights. Um, but well, thank you, William. I am excited to hopefully eventually meet in New York City or that would be delightful <laughs> yes yes or when I'm in Philly we'll oh, see yeah. um I love funny. yes I love the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts that's actually one of my favorite museums um oh. because the building is so stunning oh, um yes and, yes and that's actually where Walt Whitman's uh portrait is by Eakins oh right is there so yeah there's a lot of I think queer art um, pieces there. Um, but yeah, thank you. This has been wonderful. I'm sure everyone out there, you know, anyone who loves historical literature, who loves queer literature, who just wants to add to their, uh, you know, E.M. Farster catalog. If you haven't read E.M. Farster, now you have a motive after you read Alec, then turn to Morris, which actually could be an yeah. interesting, yes, that could be that, an interesting entry. way to do it. That is the way, that's the way. Um, so I'll hold it up again, but here's Alec by William DeConzio. And also the audio book is very, very good. Um, again. John Sackville. Thank you, John Sackville. I know it's very British. I'm like, yes. something Sackville. Okay. <laughs> Actually, Vita Sackville West was Virginia Woolf's lover. <laughs> yeah, I think I, he, when he, he said that the project was um, very significant to him, Mm. And I, I'm pretty sure he's a gay man, um, but I wonder if he, he, if his family was part of that family. 
Yeah, well, if so, yeah, you I might mean, have some kind of distant connection to Virginia Woolf, which would make sense with the E.M. Farster Bloomsbury group. Okay, there's so much more we could talk about, but I'll have to have you back on, William. Please, please, you know, let me know when your next work is coming out. I want to definitely uh, interview you again. So yeah, thank you so much, William. And um, I'm going to say bye to the listeners who are, you know, currently absorbing all of this conversation. Bye, listeners. Bye, listeners. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime in Academia. I'm Andrew Rimby, the Executive Director. Our team includes Mary DePippi, our Chief Contributor, Nicole Arguello, our Marketing Assistant, and Kimberly Dallas, our Editor. Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes come out on Monday, and sometimes I'm joined by a guest co-host. Make sure you follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. And here's Mary. Hello, everyone. I am the host of True Crime and Academia. Do not forget to follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia. And coming soon, there will be a Twitter also at True Crime and Academia. Now, if you're like me, you like to have bonus episodes. I love extra content, don't you? So go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Not only do you have access to our video interviews, but you will also be able to access never before seen bonus episodes. So like I said, you can't, we don't release them anywhere else. You can only get those on Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and become a subscriber today. And don't forget to listen to ivory tower boiler room on Mondays and true crime and academia on Tuesdays. Thank you.